following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open them up with me to the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 4. A couple of weeks ago, we began a series of sermons entitled Keeping the Heart, based upon Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. And this is the second sermon in that series. I'd like to begin by reading Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 in your hearing this morning. I'm going to do something a little bit different that I can't ever recall doing in the past. I'd like to read the passage in a number of English translations because I want you to gain an understanding of exactly what God is commanding us to do as his people. And so, as always, it's with a great sense of privilege and honor that I invite you to hear and heed the words of the true and living God. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over and guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Above every charge, Keep thy heart, for out of it are the outgoings of life. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And finally, keep and guard your heart with all vigilance and above all that you guard, for out of it flow the springs of life. Grace Community Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If we were to follow the order of the Hebrew words in this verse, it would read like this. With all guarding, guard the heart that is yours, for out of it flow the springs of life. John Flavel, the English Puritan, said the following. The heart of man is his worst part before it is regenerated and the best part afterward. It is the seat of principles and the fountain of actions. The eye of God is fixed upon it, and the eye of the Christian ought to be principally fixed upon it. What we are given here in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, is a mandate of supreme importance, paramount importance. We are given a command that We cannot afford to push off. We cannot afford to set aside or to take lightly. Literally, everything you do flows from the ever-gushing fountain of your heart. 
the thesis or the main proposition that I set before you in the opening sermon was that as the people of God, we are to prioritize the keeping and right managing of the heart at all times and above everything else in this life. And I sought to show you how that proposition is consistent with all the other biblical responsibilities that God lays before us in his word. It's consistent with all the other priorities that we are to set before us. Yes, we are called to prioritize glorifying God and enjoying him forever. We are called to prioritize loving our triune God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. We are called to prioritize our God-given responsibilities to our spouses, to our children, to our neighbors and our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are called to prioritize the Great Commission to make disciples by the proclamation of the gospel, to mark those disciples by the new covenant sign of baptism, and to see to it that those disciples are maturing in grace as they walk in obedience to everything Christ has commanded his church. But as I argued last time, we cannot prioritize any of that, much less actually succeed in any god pleasing degree if we fail to prioritize the keeping and right managing of our hearts at all times and above everything else in this life. Christian, how can you do any of that in any Christ-exalting degree if you allow your heart to become cold or calloused or captivated by the charms of this world? If you allow your heart to become distracted or distant or divided, or double-minded? How can you do any of that in any God-honoring degree if you, because of a lack of diligence, allow your heart to become impure, or indifferent, or ignorant, or inflamed with the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things? How can you participate in any aspect of the Great Commission if you, by inexcusable neglect, allow your heart to overflow with fatness, folly, futility, and the fear of man? How can you effectively point perishing souls to the love of God in Christ when you, in your heart, have abandoned the love that you had at first? It's no careless claim or exaggerated expression to state that as the people of God, we are to prioritize the keeping and right managing of our hearts at all times and above everything else in this life. To clarify again, the author of Proverbs is not talking about that hollow muscular organ in our chests that pumps blood through our circulatory systems. He, along with the rest of the Bible, is talking about the center and core of all that we are in terms of what we store up and what we remember, in terms of how we reason and how we think, in terms of what we feel, in terms of emotions and affections. The heart refers to what we will and where choices are made, what we desire, what we are devoted to, and what we are driven by what we feel in terms of conscience whenever we do good and whenever we act wickedly. 
By and large, when the Bible refers to the heart of man, it is referring to the true man, the inner man, the real you, the unseen part of you that can easily be hidden from others, even those closest to you. But the part of you that God sees and considers and ultimately cares about. As an engineer who designs an engine knows everything about that engine, how it works, what it's made of, how it operates, what it needs, so God, who fashions the heart, knows the secrets of the heart. He probes the heart, He examines the heart. Psalm 51 verse 7 says that God knows when a heart is truly broken, truly repentant, truly contrite. Jeremiah 20 and verse 12 says that the Lord of hosts sees the heart and the mind. Acts chapter 1 verse 24, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Matthew 9, 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Revelation 2.23, Jesus says, All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. In the well-known 1 Samuel 16.7, God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. What's the conclusion here? If God's chief concern with us is our hearts, should we not make our hearts our chief concern? If we learn anything from Scripture about what it means to walk with God, we learn that if God is ultimately concerned about one thing, well, we are ultimately concerned about something other than what he's focused on, we cannot seriously claim that we are walking with God. How can two walk together unless they're agreed? We see this all over the place, but for the sake of our time this morning, I'll point out one example. At the end of John chapter 5, we are told that the reason why the religious leaders weren't able to receive Christ, the reason they weren't able to come to him, the reason they were not able to believe his message and begin to follow him and walk with him was because they were ultimately concerned about the glory that they received from one another instead of seeking the glory that comes from the only God, the glory and honor that he bestows on those who humble themselves and honor him. They weren't able to walk with Christ because they were ultimately concerned about something that he and his father were not concerned about. And what I'm saying this morning is that when it comes to the heart, if the heart is what God is ultimately concerned about, what it loves and what it loathes, what it holds dear and what it hates. If God is ultimately concerned about your heart and what it's attracted to and what it's abhorred by, what it delights in and what it's disgusted by, and yet you show very little or no concern about these matters, much less invest the time and energy to apply yourself to the hard work of heart work. How can you truly sustain the claim that you were actually walking with the living God? The tested genuineness of a person's claim to walk with God will always narrow down to whether or not that individual 
prioritizes the matters that God is ultimately concerned about. And when it comes to us, the heart of the matter about which he is ultimately concerned about is the matter of the heart. Well, two weeks ago, I gave you a basic three-part breakdown of Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, if you want to look down at the verse again. Notice that, first of all, God sets forth a mandate of supreme importance. Keep your heart. Secondly, God proceeds to give us the means of obeying the mandate with all vigilance. And then third, God lays before us the motivation for obeying the mandate. For from it flow the springs of life. As God's people, we are given a mandate, the means of obeying the mandate, and then the motivation for obeying it. Last time we considered the mandate itself. Keep your heart. But before we move on to consider the means of obeying this mandate, I want to solidify in your minds what it means to keep the heart. And to do this, I want to focus in and unpack the meaning of the word keep. You see, this is necessary. Sometimes we want to go straight to application. Tell us what to do. When you open your Bibles, the first question you should not ask is, what am I called to do? The first question you're to ask is, what is this saying? What does this mean? And then how does it apply? I think as we unpack the riches of what this means today, you'll have a better understanding of how it applies. The Hebrew word natsar is used 60 times in the Old Testament. It's this word keep. At least as far as the ESV is concerned, the 21 out of 60 times it's translated, it's translated as keep. It's used in that unparalleled self-disclosure on Mount Sinai where God reveals himself to Moses saying, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Here's our word. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. So we see here that keeping is used in the sense of reserving. He keeps, he reserves steadfast love for thousands. It's used in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, to describe God keeping someone in perfect peace. So we see here that keeping is used in the sense of maintaining. He's able to maintain the sense of perfect peace in his people when they trust him. It's used in Isaiah chapter 27, verse 3, where God says, In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. So we see here that the word keep, natsar, is used in the sense of watching over something in a jealously protective manner. It's used in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49 to describe God taking his servant, whom we know to be Jesus Christ, his son, by the hand and keeping him in order to give him as a covenant for the people. Keeping is used in the sense of preserving. We have those traces and those hints throughout the Gospels that they tried to arrest him. They tried to throw him off a cliff. They tried to destroy him, but it could not happen because it was not the father's time. 
Why? Because as Isaiah 42 and 49 are telling us, the father was holding him by the hand and keeping him. It's used in the sense of preserving. Preserving. It's used mainly of God's people keeping God's covenant, his law, his commandments, his ordinances. And so the keeping in in, in these instances has to do with careful observation. Keep the heart. It's used with reference to God keeping Israel as the apple of his eye in the Old Testament. Interestingly enough, though, it's also used of a man tending a fig tree. What's even more interesting is this name is actually given to God. In Job 7, verse 20, God is referred to as the watcher of mankind, the Natsar, the the watcher of all mankind. So it can mean to watch. In fact, it's actually translated as watchman or even watchtower several times in the Old Testament. But one of the interesting ways in which it's translated is in Nahum chapter 2 and verse 1, where it's translated as the word man. Not man as a noun, but man as a verb. Listen to what the prophet says. Man the ramparts. That is, set watchmen on the walls of the city and watch for enemies. We've heard that expression before. Man the walls. Man the watchtower. That's the word here in the Hebrew. So when you pull all of this biblical data together, you get a complete picture of the meaning of Natsar. In this mandate of supreme importance, God is saying, maintain your heart. Preserve your heart. Carefully observe your heart. Keep your heart the way I keep my people as the apple of my eye. Tend your heart the way a man tends his fig tree. Watch over your heart in a jealously protective manner as a watchman watches for incoming enemies. Man the walls of your heart. Man the watchtower over your heart. Don't just look for out don't don't just look outwardly for incoming enemies but look inwardly at the treacherous sins that are waging war against your soul. So on this watchtower you're to look out but you're also to look in. That's the matter at hand. That's the charge, that's the mandate. And so let's consider now the means of carrying out this mandate. This is part one of two messages I'll give on the means of maintaining this mandate, the means of carrying out this mandate. Well, even as the mandate consists of three words, the divinely prescribed means also consists of three words. Notice the text. Look down at your Bible. Keep your heart with all vigilance. The word all indicates complete and total and wholehearted vigilance. There are a number of instances in the word of God where we are called to do something and God places the word all in front of it in order to push us towards doing it with everything in us. We're called to walk in Ephesians chapter 4 with all humility. 
We are called to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication and to keep alert with all perseverance. Paul prayed that the Colossians would be strengthened with all power. We are called, Colossians 1.29-128, to proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And here in Proverbs 4.23, we're called to man the ramparts and walls of our hearts with all vigilance, with complete vigilance, with total vigilance, with wholehearted vigilance. It seems to indicate constancy and persistence. That the vigilance we're to exercise is something that is ongoing, it's unrelenting, it's uninterrupted. Now let's look at this word vigilance now. Because this word describes the heart of how we're to keep and guard our hearts. This is the means. With all vigilance. The Hebrew word mishmar is found 22 times in the Old Testament. And it can refer to putting someone into custody. Putting someone into custody. In fact, that's the way it's used most commonly in the Old Testament. Custody. Keep your heart with all custody. It's the same word used to describe the time Joseph, when he was in Egypt, brought his brothers and put them into custody. The word also means to guard. It's used in the book of Nehemiah to describe those who were guarding the wall while it was being built. The word also means to watch. To watch. It's used in Jeremiah 51 to describe making the watch strong and setting up watchmen against the Babylonians. And finally, it can refer to service. For example, in Nehemiah chapter 13, Nehemiah prayed that God would remember everything he had done in the service of God. That's the same word, Mishmar, in Proverbs 4.23. So when you put all of this together, again, we're trying to understand before what we're called to do, what does the text say? What does the text tell us? When you put all of that together, we are called to keep our hearts in our care and in our custody. We are called to guard them with all guarding. We are called to be watchmen who set the watch strong over our hearts. And the same way Nehemiah gave himself to the service of God's house, We are called upon by God to give ourselves to the service of our hearts. Sadly, so many people are quick to focus on servicing the AC and servicing the vehicle and servicing this or that, and they pay very little attention to servicing their hearts. And that's the most important thing. That's the means of obeying this God-given mandate, watching, guarding, and holding our hearts in our care and in our custody. Now, at this point, you might say, so that's it? All of this working up for this? We're just called to watch? We're just called to observe? We're just called to guard? Lock, put it up into custody. It's the most precious part of you. Put it in custody. Lock the key. 
Or lock, lock it with the key and walk away? Or just sit there and hope that nothing goes wrong? I thought you were going to give me a list of things to actually do. You're basically just calling me to be a guard, watching over my heart as if it's in my care and custody. That, that's easy. Just watch it. Just look over it. It's easy. But is it? Is it? If it was easy work, we would not need the totality of divine instruction contained in the word of God. We would not need the plethora of divine warnings contained in the scriptures. And if it was easy work, we would not need the divine power of God working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. We certainly wouldn't need the book of Proverbs giving us divine wisdom for how to keep our hearts in our care and in our custody. Did you know that in the 31 Proverbs, the heart is mentioned 80 times? 80 times. The book about wisdom and walking in the fear of the living God and avoiding the paths of wickedness. The heart is mentioned 80 times. The heart is extremely difficult to keep because of what it is, because of what it does, because of what it's capable of doing, and because of what's against it. It's no wonder John Flavel, that same Puritan, said, the greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. And the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. So, if the essence of our duty can be summed up by watching and guarding and looking over our hearts as watchmen appointed by God, we need to know three things. Number one, we need to know the kind of watchmen we're to be. Secondly, we need to know the kind of enemies that we're to watch for coming from the outside. And thirdly, we need to know the kind of enemies we're to watch for rising up on the inside. We're going to do that next week. For today, the remaining remainder of our time together, I want to focus on the biblical duty of watchfulness. Watchfulness. One of the most neglected spiritual disciplines today. Brian Hedges has a book today called Watchfulness. And in that book, he shows that while the Christian church today is running to and fro and getting the latest you know, antidote for how to do this and how to do that, one of the most neglected duties is actually taking the time to self-examine and watch over ourselves. Because, let's face it, it's easier to go out and do. It's easier to go out and read a book. It's easier to go out and talk to someone about Christ. It really is easy to do those things. What's hard is to sit down before God and an open Bible and say, Oh God, search me and know me and reveal any wickedness within me and then lead me in the way everlasting. Two weeks ago, I pointed you to two thick volumes written in the 1600s devoted to Proverbs 4.23, How to Guard the Heart. The Puritans labored and labored to teach their people how to guard their hearts. And yet, that's what, when was the last time you heard a sermon on how to keep the heart? Why to keep the heart? 
and everything involved in keeping the heart. It's just not a common thing today because we're so focused on the outward aspect of our Christianity, raising our children, educating our children, doing this and doing that. But listen to me, if you cannot guard your heart, how can you guard your children? If you cannot maintain a good, healthy heart before God, how can you lead your children in that manner? Watchfulness. I want to show you that this is not just a Proverbs 4.23 thing. This is all over the scriptures. In Matthew 26, verse 41, as Jesus is approaching the cross, he told his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, one might easily conclude that all he was saying was, watch out for Judas as he's on his way, or watch out for the soldiers coming. Watch for their lanterns. Do you think Jesus is really concerned about that? He knew his appointed hour. The Father had set that hour for him. He knew when it was. But he told his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Again, he's not referring to a physical reality here. He's not saying, watch and pray that none of you may be arrested along with me. It has to do with temptation. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I know if I was there, my inclination would be to scratch my head and look at the other disciples and say, what is he talking about? We've just had supper with him. He told us that one of us was going to betray him. One of us was going to deny him. We're going to the garden. The hour is coming. And he's telling us to watch and pray that we do not enter into temptation. What does this have to do with anything happening in real space and time right now? And yet Jesus says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation because that is what we are called to do. That was what they were called to do in the hottest moment of their lives. And that is what we are called to do at all times and above everything else. As he was referring to his second coming in Luke 21, he says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. In other words, he knows the danger of the heart to lose its eternal perspective. How? By dissipation, by drunkenness, and by the cares of this present life. The heart is able to be weighed down, and we are to watch our hearts, lest they be weighed down by these things. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13 says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. The call to watchfulness. How do we do that? Colossians chapter 4 verse 2 says this. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. I mentioned that this is, seems like an easy duty, right? To watch over our hearts. Why is it hard? Because prayer is hard. And why is prayer hard? Because the flesh is weak. Because we're quick to go out and do, and it's easier to go out and do. It's hard 
to set time aside to just sit alone before God, to enter into your watchtower and to pray. What are the dangers within, Lord? Where am I getting loose? Where am I showing a lack of diligence? Where is my conscience not as sharp as it used to be? Why is it that I can do this and that and my conscience isn't seared anymore? Lord, that bothers me. Renew my heart and my mind. Watchfulness takes place in the place of prayer. In the place of prayer and in the spirit of prayer. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We're to be watchful. To be watchful. The New Testament word for watch also is translated a number of places as wake up. Wake up. So this call in Proverbs 4.23 to watch our hearts, it's a call to be awake. To be awake. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And notice the first thing he says to them, wake up. It's the same word in the Greek as to watch. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, if you will not watch, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come against you. We're called to be awake. Friends, you know that there are things in this life that can put our Christian lives to sleep. I'm not talking physical sleep. I'm not talking literal sleep. I'm talking about spiritual slumber. There are things that can sing a lullaby to our hearts and make those hearts sleepy. To not have them awake and alert, mindful of our biblical responsibilities, mindful of our Lord's coming, mindful of the enemy around us, mindful of the traitors within us. There are things in our lives, there are things in your life that put you to sleep and you know what those things are and I know what those things are in my life and we are to watch, we are to be awake, we are to not slumber spiritually. The word also means awake. We read in Luke chapter 12, please turn there with me. Luke chapter 12. Look at verse 35 with me, Luke 12, 35. I want you to see that Jesus calls us to watchfulness, to wakefulness, to be awake and to stay awake. He says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. 
Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he, the master, will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. That's the second pronouncement of blessing upon those who were spiritually watchful. Blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, There is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. Let us keep awake and be sober. Spiritually speaking, are you awake this morning? Are you alert this morning? Are you watching over your heart this morning? Are you awake enough to know when an intruder comes into that heart or when a traitor rises up within that heart, seeks to destroy you and your soul? Maybe today is a day for repentance and confession before the Lord of spiritual slumber, a lack of being awake and watching. And finally, turn with me to Revelation 16 and verse 15. We have seen Jesus already in the Gospel of Luke twice pronounce a blessing to those who stay awake and watch over themselves. And we have this blessing again in Revelation 16 and verse 15. In the midst of these judgments, this comes forth to the people of God. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Blessed is the one who stays awake. So as we go back to Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, we have a better understanding of what it means to keep the heart with all vigilance. God has appointed you as the watchman on the wall of your heart. You're guarding a fountain, a fountain that is ever gushing and always gushing. From it flow the springs of life, and you are the one in whose care and custody God has committed that heart. 
next week as we get into the manner in which we're to do that, right? The attitude we're to have as watchmen on that tower. As we get into what enemies are coming from without and what enemies are rising within, we're going to look at these things. But for now, you need to understand that this is the task at hand. It's the hardest thing to do, to stay awake, because everything around you, and you know it, Christian, everything around you is meant to lull you to sleep, to get you to not be as intense about the things of God as you should be. Things that would just make you lukewarm. Things that would make you just cool down a little bit. What are those things? Where have you neglected to be watchful? Where have you neglected to allow, where where have you allowed spiritual slumber? For those of you, it's maybe your time of prayer is diminishing each day. Your time in the word is diminishing each day. Some, you found yourself extremely hot and awake and alert and watchful when you were regularly a part of the prayer meeting. And it was a place where the Lord just set you on high on that watchtower and you could see and understand all those dangers in your lives and you walked away thinking, Lord, help me, equip me, train my hands for spiritual war. What is it in you? Friends, watch your heart with all watching. Keep your heart in your care and custody for from it flow the springs of life.